Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to Recycler's Secrets. Today, we've got Paul Engel with us of Pratt Industries. Paul is the vice president, GM, head of national sales, chief bottle washer, kind of does it all over there. Uh, been on board for roughly five years now, been in the industry for a long time. Paul is a wealth of knowledge, and we're just going to kind of dive in and, and talk through the fiber paper industry, corrugated industry a little bit today and kind of give you guys a little bit of background on that. As we're trending in the United States right now, you're seeing a lot in the news about recycling, struggling, and, and what that means. And so we're going to talk through that a little bit. But we're also going to talk about change of material stream and, and how Pratt is doing investments across the country and the way that their business model is a little bit different, uh, utilizing recycling centers to feed their paper mills and what uh, what they're looking at in the future. So, Paul, take it just a second and, and give us a little bit of background color on you. Yeah, I appreciate that. By the way, thanks for having me in. <clears throat> so uh, roll, roll back the clock about five years. Pratt reached out and hired me to build the infrastructure in the Midwest. And I said, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> well, we're building a new paper mill in Valparaiso, Indiana. And that was uh, the initial project here in the Midwest. We invested significantly in the new mill to support our core business, which is making boxes. One of the things that uh, we're very proud of is the fact that all of our products are made from 100% recycled paper. And the very unique thing about what we do and how we do it is that unlike any other paper maker in the business, we make our product with a uh, large majority of the material being mixed paper. Uh, sometimes 60 to 70% of our paper is made from mixed paper and the other 30 rough percent is OCC. Okay. For those who don't know, define mixed paper a little bit. <clears throat> mixed paper is what you would find in your bin on the curb at your home or apartment. It's envelopes, it's magazines, it's junk mail. Uh, in the old days, it was newspapers, not a lot of that going anymore, cereal boxes, and uh, in, in some cases, food packaging as well. So it's anything that's in the bin on the curb. Right. So one of the things that makes Pratt unique is you're using a recycle center infrastructure to feed the mill. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first came on board with Pratt, the, the mission was very simple, very, very clear. I exist to fiber the paper mills. And our mills consume directionally about a half a million tons of paper a year. So to build that infrastructure, we looked at four or five different key uh, initiatives that we had to launch right away. One is the brick-and-mortar model, where we put recycling plants around uh, the country, but in this case in the Midwest, uh, where our either our, our hauler network or residents can bring us recyclables. And the one thing that we knew from day one is you cannot just be in the paper recycling business. You have to be a full-service sustainability solutions provider. So as a part of 
capturing the paper from the fiber stream or the waste stream, we also get plastics and glass and metals and all the things that, again, would be on the curb in your bin. So we put recycling plants around the country, and Pratt has, I believe we have 15 or 16 plants today, and they're anything from a full-service MRF, where we're processing thousands of tons every month, uh, to what sometimes is called a dump and bale operation, where we are out just bringing in paper grades or plastics. People dump them on the, on the pad, and we process them. We have contracts as large as uh, the city of New York. We do all the recycling for the city of New York. It's an amazing story. The, the material comes down the Hudson River on barges, and we uh, take it off the barges with grapples and feed it into our pulpers at the paper mills. Uh, so we built a brick and mortar. We have recycling plants. Another way to fiber our mills is what we call closed loop. Probably the thing I'm most proud of as a company, and especially in the Midwest, because we've exploded this very exciting opportunity. We have box customers like Amazon and Walmart and Lowe's and, and Home Depot, and the list goes on and on all across the country. And as a part of that, we, we, uh, we get an order for boxes. We'll deliver the boxes in a Pratt um, trailer, and that same trailer will pick up the customer's recyclables and bring them back to our processing plants. Or if it's full truckload quantities, we'll bring it right to our paper mill. And we call that close the loop. Customers love it. It's a great sustainability story. Um, you know, we'll, we'll sell them boxes made from 100% recycled material. And in many cases, that material comes from their own plants. So again, it's a great close the loop story. So as we're talking about closed loop, when, when we look at those customers of yours, those include Amazon, USPS, you know, the large food manufacturing. I mean, it's, it's a global brand, that umbrella that you guys are servicing. Absolutely. And they're very engaged. They, they love to tell the story. So if you go to their websites and just click on sustainability, you're often going to see the whole Pratt Amazon or Pratt Walmart, Pratt USPS closed, closed the loop story. It's a, it's, a, it's a great model for us. Right. The other way that we uh, obtain fiber is we just go out to other generators, and we have uh, large customers like Kroger and Aldi and Meyer and General Motors and Ford Motors. We oftentimes don't always sell them boxes, but we want to buy their, their recycled paper. So that's the, the third way that we, uh, that we capture that material. And so you said a, a fun word there as we talk about recycling and in the world of recycling today, we're talking about commodity values a lot and, and that declining value here across the United States based on, you know, a lot of impacts from China. You use the word buy there. I know when you're talking about material that's getting picked up at the curb and brought to one of your facilities, you're looking at what they call a tip fee a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And in the old model, we'll, we'll go back, you know, five, six years, cardboard had a value of $200 a ton and the tip fee was $65, $80 a ton. So there was this net gain value that was done as a rebate back to the transporter or the, or the company that was sending that material. That margin's really shallowed up. Can you yeah, talk to that? It's, you know, it's, absolutely I can. And as I travel around the country and speak to, uh, to people like yourselves or to the state recycling coalitions, I often tell a story. Uh, you know, I started in this business, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, in 1974. My first role was with Container Corporation. It was a paper mill, and I was given the position as a mill buyer, and I was a teenager. I was a kid. Um, in 1974, I was buying 
old corrugated container bailed for $50 a ton in Columbus, Ohio, all day long. 40-some years later, that same commodity this particular month is trading at $35 a ton. It's $15 less than it was 40-some years ago. Imagine what your wages were 40 years ago, the cost of a car, the cost of doing business. And then you fast forward to today's world, and you're trying to run a recycling facility, and you're getting paid, if you're getting paid for a commodity, of $15 less than it was four, four decades ago. That's the real dynamic in the business. So how do we exist and continue to have a business model where recyclers can actually have a business? Right? Your, your costs have gone up, but your, the price of the commodity that you are trying to sell is approaching an all-time low. Some of the challenges we have in the business today is because of that high cost, MRFs, if they're going to stay in business, have to charge for that tip. And there's tip fees across the country now that, that are 80 to over $100 a ton to take that very valuable, in, in our minds, a very valuable commodity, because that is our raw material, and dump it on their pad for processing and be charged 80 to $100 a ton and then try to sell that same commodity after you've put labor and energy and other costs into that product and then turn around and try to sell it for $35 a ton. You, you can't exist. The economics are definitely hard. And for so sure. what you're seeing in, in the small generation MRFs, the, the you know more manual county material processing facilities, a lot of those are still closing. I mean, we've had, a, a, you know, over the last four years, we've seen a lot of decline in those naturally just because the single stream movement. But now what those guys were holding on to with plastic values and paper and corrugated values have gone away. And, and that makes a, a definite struggle bus for them, right? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, one of the dramatic changes that we've seen in our in our space over the last maybe a year, almost two years now, is recyclers could, I, I guess I'd call it weather the storm over the last 20 to 30 years. There'd be times in our market where prices would drop, uh, but you could see the light at the end of the tunnel because you knew that either export was gonna pick up or demand was gonna pick up or there was some dynamic in our world that would allow them to recover. We don't see that anymore and we don't see it clearly for the foreseeable future. With what the global market has done, and by the way, we've done a lot of this to ourselves, for a long, long time, when there was a load of paper that was um, not going to meet the specs of a domestic mill, we would simply say, ah, don't worry about it. It's too dirty for the U.S. to use. Let's send it to China. We all did it, and it's come back to haunt us. China says enough's enough. Uh, but now there's not an outlet for that material. So many recyclers are in distress across the country. They can't see how they're going to dig out of this hole. And the only alternative is to shutter themselves. They're going to have to shut down. Uh, the other, I think the, the more serious competitor to us right now, and, and I'm speaking on this next week inside our own company, is I, I think our, our newest competitor is the landfill. Across the country, because the cost to tip the material is so high, and the price being offered for the commodity once processed is so low, and landfill costs are much, much lower than the cost of tip recyclables at a MRF, 
it's logical that the materials is, it's not destined to go to the landfill, it's going to the landfill today. We know it's happening across the country, right. and that's evil. You know, there's a, a trend that's also happening, and that's diversion of recycled materials to waste energy facilities. You know, there's either too high of a tip fee at a local processor, and they utilize uh, alternative use, they call it, when they bring it to a waste energy facility versus recycling. And you've seen it here in, in Michigan uh, over in the Detroit market where we're actually sitting at the Michigan Recycling Coalition Conference where there were communities that were using the Detroit incinerator until they shuttered that, and now they're struggling. And there were large national corporations that were using that as part of their zero waste initiatives, which without the incinerator become very hard to be achievable. And so I, I think you're dead on on that. I think that you're seeing communities that are not looking to pay at the curb for the level of service that they once had um, as the hauler network comes back and challenges those curb contracts to make those more durable uh, and sustainable for them to say, well, if, you know, if we can't do that, we're going to go here. Um, you see some communities that, you know, go from weekly service to biweekly or once a month once the bin fills up, what's that customer going to do? They're going to put it in the trash, like you said, and it's it's going to go to the landfill. How do we get the resident or the business to understand the cost? That's a great question. I think that's the, the biggest challenge we have in the industry today is is that communication. I, I, I want to go back just, just for a second. Absolutely. I've never been an advocate of the waste of energy. It's maybe sometimes considered one step better than landfilling. I think that may be debatable. Uh, as I've traveled around and I and I talk at these types of events, um, I spend an awful lot of time talking about economic development monies available. And instead of looking at maybe how to improve diversion rates with that money that is available, maybe states and, and Michigan is at the top of my list, how do we get some of that monies uh, identified and then channeled to uh, the end user of recovered material, create more pools through the marketplace. That's how you balance supply and demand. And also on education. Um, for a long time, we've done wishful recycling. And I had this conversation with somebody earlier this morning about uh, a pizza box and whether a pizza box is recyclable. Well, of course it is. Uh, what, I, what I would like to not see recycled is bowling balls and rubber hoses and things that people look at and say, ah, oh, this must be recyclable, throw it in the bin. Let's educate the people, that the, the residents around the country of what is recyclable, what value do those commodities truly have, maybe narrow the stream down a bit. Uh, I'm not sure we'd ever go back to what we've called in the industry dual stream. Uh, that's taken a step back, but what an efficient way to actually recycle. Dual stream meaning you have two bins on the curb instead of one. One bin is for all your fiber, so it's not contaminated by pickle juice and all the other stuff that goes into uh, a single stream bin. And the other bin is for containers. No bowling balls, no rubber hoses, two bins, paper in one, and containers in the other. Right, three-dimensionals. So you said something there that, that I picked up on because a lot of my business is done in college towns, pizza boxes. So a lot of college towns actually market to the college students not to recycle the pizza boxes for various reasons. A, you know, pizza companies that don't put liners in them have a lot of grease in the box. 
B, you got the little Barbie tent in a lot of them. The reality of it is there's a half a pizza in a lot of those boxes. How do you how do you play that? I mean, you said, yeah, of course, pizza boxes are recyclable, but like all materials, there's an exception to the rule, right? Absolutely. I, yeah, it goes back to education, and we, we all eat pizza. And if I get a pizza where the cheese is all stuck to the box and I take it out to the bin, I look at a trash bin or recycle bin, I make a decision that this one is not something I can recycle. Uh, 80% of the time, just a little, you know, a spot of grease or a little bit of cheese, I put it right in the recycle bin. And look, we make a lot of pizza boxes across the country. So we, we're big advocates of recycling what is appropriate and what can be recycled to help you know, communities all across the country. One of my favorite stories of the last year is uh, one of the operators, one of the national MRF chains said, you know, my wife was out working in the backyard. And she broke the shovel and she walked up and she put the metal and the wood in the recycle bin as I rounded the corner. I was like, what is wrong with you? She's like, well, it's metal and it's wood. They're recyclable. All right. And he's like, I work for a national recycling company. You can't do that. <laughs> and so if, at the highest level, you know, if those guys and their partners are struggling with it, education, of course, is, is a challenge. And a lot of it comes down to convenience, right? I mean, our population here in the United States is convenience driven. They want the easiest solution with the least amount of effort. And they're a lot of times not willing to look at the directions. Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, another thing that the industry is, is focusing on now is not just verbal communication and letters and communications via media, but also packaging and what is the message on the package itself. Is it, is it recyclable or is it uh, partial recyclable and, and identifying exactly what that commodity can, can do downstream? So, Paul, in the MRFs that you guys operate that take um, mixed materials, mm -hmm. containers and fiber, how are you dealing with the changes in materials? And, and when I say that, we once in this industry had a, a very profitable HDPE Tide bottle, and now we've gone to flexible packaging, which has very low value. Um, on the consumer level, we've placed manufacturers have really downgraded their packaging to a degree that as a materials processing center, as your business, it's not really desirable anymore a lot of times. How do you deal with that? Yeah, no, it's, it's very challenging. And, and uh, one of the challenges is as a, as a producer of a product, and let's say you're making um, a food-grade item that's going into a, a packaging you can see through, it's cheese, for example, and that cheese has a multi-substrate packaging and and some of it's not recyclable or if it is recyclable it's it's not recyclable in the form that it was made into this beautiful package with multicolored print and the ziploc um, closure that we have on there now it sells great on the shelf it looks great it's very marketable but quite honestly at the end of the day that product is no longer recyclable that's a big challenge for us. so it ends up going to the landfill downstream and that's that's another uh opportunity for improvement is when people don't understand what they can put in the bin and they feel good when they put it into the recycle bin but what they need to really understand is when it gets to the MRF for processing it ends up in the landfill anyhow right and so then not only are they paying a higher dollar to process that material at the materials recovery facility then you're paying another $50 on the backside, $60 to landfill that, depending on where you are in the country. Some places mm -hmm. are as high as $150 a ton for landfill. 
Paul, in your Gary facility, you guys put in a book shredder, two of them actually. Yeah, we did. Tell me about that business model and that market scape a little bit. Yeah, and then uh, I'm going to put another one into our recycle plant in Wapakoneta, Ohio. So when I, when I was first introduced with the business opportunity, one of our customers came to us and said, we have a couple thousand tons a month of books that need to be shred. No, no aftermarketing, uh, no exporting in whole book form for aftermarketing. We need to make sure that these are destroyed. And I thought to myself, okay, well, we can do that. But eventually that, that material is going to run out because there's only a finite supply of books. Well, that's not been the case. We've been shredding that amount of books for at least four years now. And uh, what oftentimes happens, as I understand it, is when a book goes into print, they'll, they'll print 10 or 15% more than their projected lift from the shelf. So it's like over-issue. Those over-issue come back to us uh, to be shredded and destroyed. In addition to that, the used book market is, is very uh, robust as well. And companies that do recycling of books and then market those recycled books will say, you know, I need 10 copies of this particular book on my shelf. It's a very sophisticated business. They, they barcode every book. They scan them in. It tells you what last month's sales were, how many I have on the shelf. I just received 25 more than I need. These 25 go to, go to recycling. Um, it's a great model. It, it ends up uh, allowing those books not to go to the landfill. And then those same books are sold into the what's called sorted office paper alternative grade and ultimately made tissue towel and napkin. So toilet paper, napkins, and in some cases some lower grade uh, writing papers. Okay. You know, I would say that with the amount of books that have been manufactured in the world, and the digital push that we're going to in, you know, another 20 years, you're not going to see 15, 30 books in someone's house like you do today. I mean, it used to be, unless you're a very avid reader, it's rare that you walk into someone's house anymore and see magazines on the coffee table and books on the shelves. And so I think that that shredding is, is going to be something that's going to continue to grow for you because those books got to go somewhere. Yeah, and for sure. like you said, Goodwill or whoever the secondhand purchaser of those are only going to hold so many copies of, of a, a book on a shelf before they got to go somewhere else. Right, and then we also have, um, in many cases, uh, the printed educational books that become outdated over a short period of time with with new things happening in the world, and so those books are also recycled. Okay. So you talked about the the grade that that becomes. Can you walk through the the four most popular grades right now? I think I might be able to do that. Uh, from our perspective, it's mixed paper. Right. Uh, our paper mills in the U.S. will consume directionally 2 million tons a year of paper. And of that 2 million tons of demand, about 70% of that is mixed paper. So for us, that's the number one grade. And again, that's the envelopes, magazines, the stuff on the curb. The, the remaining portion of our demand is old corrugated container. Probably the biggest challenge we have in our industry today is that commodity. And, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But old corrugated container is a big commodity. It's the, it's the brown box that you receive on your doorstep from Walmart or Amazon or any of the e-commerce type folks or what the groceries are shipped in to your local grocery store. Uh, another grade that is very um, in high demand is the sorted office paper. 
and it's because it is used in many cases for the tissue talon napkin, which is a consumable, non-recurring type of a grade. It's used once and then discarded. So that demand is, I think, always going to be there and, and probably increasing as our population continues to grow. Those are the three most that we deal with. Uh, the one grade, again, this, this dates me a bit, but if you asked me that question 20 years ago, there was no hesitation. It was news. Right. And that, that grade's all but disappeared. Yeah. It's been absorbed. Yep, has yeah. been. So as we talk about OCC, old corrugated cardboard, impregnated materials cause a lot of problem in your world. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you guys deal with those? Uh, as an industry, we're dealing with that in a couple ways. One is, and we the old fallback is education. So if you order something that ends up on your doorstep from e-commerce, it's typically a box, sometimes in a box, and then sometimes with um, with airbags or some type of a other packaging dunnage. And it's very common for all of us, the residents of this country, to take that package that shows up, pull the item out, and just close the box. And now when that box shows up at a recycling center, it's a box in a box with plastic dunnage or airbags inside it. Extremely difficult to separate those. Um, so education is critical. Asking the consumer to take one extra step and remove the dunnage, put it into the bin, and have the boxes knocked down flat and put it into the bin as well. Uh, we've not been successful with that, by the way, to date. There's a, still a challenge there. The other way that the, in, the industry is attacking this issue is with technology. There's an awful lot of new technology being introduced with robotics uh, for, for picking the materials. There's optical sorters that have been around for a while, but they're in you know, a new evolution. So um, that's, that's the real opportunity for us is technology. But I say that, and then I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, is that you're going to add millions of dollars in technology to a MRF to try to separate material and then sell it for what is this at historic lows. Right. So let's talk about glass impregnation. So when you talk about single stream, you know, what's it's gearing up to be the most popular way to collect mixed recyclables from the curb, not many dual stream programs left nationally. Glass impregnation in cardboard's a problem. It's a major problem. And, you know, we, we actually advocate on behalf of glass recycling. Uh, I am particularly associated with the Glass Recycling Coalition nationwide. Our company's big supporters. We sell boxes to a lot of folks that package their product in glass. Uh, we have to find a solution globally for, again, once the glass is separated, a home for that material other than landfill, aggregate, or cover, or, you know, putting it with asphalt or cement. There's got to be more uses for it. The, uh, the real issue that we have in the paper industry specifically is when glass is sent through the processing and it breaks, and you've got ground glass impregnated in the cardboard, you send it through the systems, and if it gets through onto our, our paper machines, it's like sandpaper and it, it erodes and degrades all the components of the process, all the rubber rolls, all the steel rolls, um, anything that we use to make paper, that sandpaper-like material is, is just something we struggle with. Right. 
And, you know, that's traditionally the same problem the materials recovery facility has. You get that aggregated glass, that broken down glass, in a conveyor-based system, which is a materials recovery facility. Where's the belt? Where's the rollers? Grinds in the gears. Absolutely. Creates all kinds of headaches. Yeah. And there, there are some tremendous processors of glass, even in the Midwest, um, that, that as an industry, we need to look at that as a model for success and see how we can replicate that across the country. Right. Well, I think of um, was it Ripple Glass out in Kansas City right now, mm -hmm. who's doing a very good job of going out and, and really building a brand around source separation of glass. And you know, to me, that seems like the the best solution to get that material away from a materials recovery facility. A traditionally doesn't want it in the first place, and B, when they do take it, either through the transportation model getting it there or on the floor itself, it gets broken and ground into the other materials. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as the solution for glass, the source separation? I see it as one of many solutions. You've got to have an a la carte menu. But you go back to what I said earlier about the dual stream model. It was better then. Right. It's a more costly way of doing it. I'm not sure we'll ever have the appetite for doing dual stream, but that is the best. You're separating the, the, the containers. containers from the fiber, and that right. solves the problem. Yeah. Tell me what else is exciting in the industry right now. What are the things that are on your top list? Well, I got to tell you, perhaps exciting. So I spoke at the MRC a year ago, and I was just talking to the director before I came in. And uh, as bad as this year is, everybody's got their jaws dragging the floor because of the commodity pricing and the state of the industry. Um, last year was better, and I, you know, last year was pretty brutal as well. And I. I did a presentation on the market and the, the future of recycling and the future of paper. And my last slide was a picture of a train in a tunnel. And I said, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, Pratt is, is, is there. Uh, we are building another paper mill in Wapakoneta, Ohio. Awesome. Uh, it's right down the road. It's uh, about 45 miles north of Dayton, Ohio, right off of 75. And that mill, the light at the end of the tunnel will consume a half a million tons of paper a year. That mill is just a few months away from starting up. And as an industry, uh, my phone rings off the hook every day. When can we start shipping paper in there? And that's that's a tremendous thing. That's, that's some of the coolest stuff I've heard in a long time. Well, and your light at the end of the tunnel comment, just to explain that to people who aren't super familiar with the industry, there has been a supply and demand issue for the last 24 months. And if you go back eight, nine months and you go out to the Pacific Northwest, they were sending truckload upon truckload of fiber off to the landfill because there wasn't a home for it. And, you know, in the Midwest here, we've had our struggle bus as well. But that facility is phenomenal. That'll help, you know, uh, allow that material to have a home. And that's the biggest uh, darkness that we've seen in this industry for last year is not oh, being able sure. to find the mills. Yeah. So, again, Pratt started up our paper mill in Valparaiso, Indiana, just three years ago. And that was, again, a tremendous project. Uh, it created all new demand for recovered paper in the Midwest. Um, and now the second mill, just three hours apart, uh, between the two mills, we'll, we'll be consuming about a million tons a year of paper. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. So what other shows are you going to this year? Well, we just got here today, and uh, we'll be here the rest of the week. In June, we'll be at the uh, Indiana Recycling Coalition. It's always a great event. The team there does a terrific job. 
Uh, at the end of the summer, I think it's in September, we'll be in Ohio at the Association of Ohio Recyclers. It's their state uh, affiliates as well. I will be speaking in Pennsylvania um, at their Recycling Coalition annual event in, I think it's in October. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of folks still advocating on behalf of recycling. We're out there doing the best we can. Okay. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for coming and spending a little time with us today, Sharon. One last question before you, before I let you go. What's the last book you read? Well, I'm an avid reader, and you know we talked about books earlier. Um, the answer to the question that I read them back to back: Red Mountain and Red Mountain Rising. Great books. But uh, I had a library. I probably read three to four novels a month, and I had a library like a lot of, of, of us older folks of a few hundred books. And a few years ago, my daughter bought me an electronic book for the first time. I left it in the Christmas box for like a month before I finally took it out, and now I'm hooked. I've recycled all my books, and I use only the e-reader. That's phenomenal. Yeah. I'm still a book guy. I still love the feel and the, the texture of, of the paper. Sure. Paul, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to wrap us up. And thank you much again for listening to Recycler Secrets.